Welcome to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your co-host Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl and our officially most times guest visitor, Kevin. How are you, boys? Good. Yeah, he's our uh, Billy Preston, the, the the third stuck in development beetle. Welcome back. Yeah, don't don't call it a comeback. It's a three P. <laughs> Does Billy Preston also have very long red hair? N- no, he does not. Or is that only Kevin? Okay, perfect. Just checking. I guess I didn't gonna give away that I don't know anything about the Beatles, but I guess I I just did. Billy Preston is black and has a large afro. Well, you can watch nine hours of it on Apple. <laughs> <laughs> on Apple or on Disney Plus? Yeah, it's Disney Plus. Come on, Kevin. Oh, is that? Is it Keep up with our, oh, our human right. just watch over here. <laughs> also, like, uh, I know we, we our minds differ. It's an interesting psychological study of, oh, this is very premium quality content. Where is it? Apple. Well, it's Disney. Oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> it is so strange that it's on Disney Plus and not Hulu. Like, I get it. I guess it kind of fits into the Nat Geo zone that's weirdly on disney plus but i i don't get the rationale there in general hulu is very confused kevin do you have star in canada yes i however do not subscribe to disney plus but star is very good here it's a it's a very good catalog i imagine it's like 20th century fox plus disney adult stuff or what's there it's weird because some stuff should be there and is randomly on Amazon Prime, especially new releases that are Disney affiliated um, are going to Prime. But um, I think it's going to iron itself out. Um, in the future. But having been in distribution and making like separate Canadian agreements was like my bread and butter. That can happen where just somebody buys weird properties for a little while and it will f- maybe go back to disney plus yet because disney plus adoption is high in canada i when i really want to watch something um put it on a list and then i'll pay disney plus for a month and just watch everything and then i'll stop paying because also, it's, it's getting out of hand you can also if you need you know a password for a week just you know let me know i hope disney does very generous I don't, I don't think anyone at disney listens to the podcast so is that you're gonna say the pa- password on air, Aton? You should just announce it right now. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it on Twitter. Give us a follow. The password will be there. <laughs> <laughs> I think Kevin, we wanted to have you over because a couple of weeks ago you teased. Uh, um, what, did you call it a theory or a hypothesis that you wanted to share with us around Rotten Tomatoes? But and if you are able to wait for an extra. 10 or 15 minutes. We wanted to start because since you did that, we also had different conversations in chat, the three of us, around specific movies that we've watched that we wanted to touch on, the three of us. So that feels like a nice appetizer into into the entry. If that's okay with you. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I have to say, um, we, we missed each other a little bit. Everybody was traveling and we tried to schedule this for a little while. Um, I uh, My theory has lost a little bit of thunder 
it wasn't really a theory. It's something that I was feeling without really checking up on it. And I found myself with a bunch of time on my hand between <laughs> jobs and actually went into the data and looked at it. And um, there was some nice confirmation. But, but let's start on some um, a discussion about specific movies because uh, the group chat has been going off about a couple projects. And let's start, we talked Eternals on the last episode, which unfortunately, by the time listeners <laughs> listen to this, will be out if you haven't gone listen back. But when, when we're talking right now, Kevin, you haven't listened to Carlson, our review. But the TLDR is, Carl and I liked Eternals. I don't know if I would add really liked Eternals, but we're kind of on the positive side of Eternals. And you seem to not be. So... Please, we'll give you the floor. <laughs> very, very generous of you. Um, listen, so it's it's kind of one of these weird movies. I don't think that it is a bad movie. I went to see it with a teenager um, who was really, really excited to go see the movie. Okay. And he turned to me after the movie and I expected him to say, wow, this was awesome. He's like, well, this was a bunch of, you know, it wasn't great. I hated it, but it's not, I don't think it's a bad movie. I want to, I want to split it into the like positives and negatives. You hated it. I think that's it was an interesting a... way to say you think that's a good movie. <laughs> I think continuous. it's fine, but you hated it. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's not entirely bad. I don't think. The, it's a bit too much, everything. I think it was way too long as well. And maybe it suffered from me watching Shang-Chi the same week, which I oh, no. think is by far <laughs> oh, no. the best Marvel project oh, no. since, <laughs> since the, the ending oh, no. of the, the first saga. I think it was beautiful. I finally a villain I was interested in. Uh, obviously, they had some. Yuck! I can't believe uh, you're saying these words oh, right now. No. But sorry, continue. Finish. It's great. I I <laughs> really enjoyed myself. I did not watch it in theaters. I watched it on my television, and I had a great time. Um, and I think Tony Lung is one of the great Marvel villains. Eternals. So I think it wait, was a wait, very wait. efficient. Shang Chi. Yes. Carl, you wanted to say something? Well, I, I was—I don't have a horse in this race because I have not seen Shang Chi, but I—I I do think you just have Tony Lung goggles on, which is understandable. I mean, I, I like that they tried a human villain for once, or for let's say most of the movie, um, and he was really effective. I think that Simu Liu and Aquafina are very charming. Um, the vibe of like. You know, the jokiness of the movie, the lightness of the movie, uh, and certain parts, especially when uh, they go from San Francisco to different places uh, all over Asia, had a lot of uh, Thor Ragnarok vibes for me, which is my favorite Marvel movie. And I, I have to say, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and this week it was announced that they are uh, renewing it for another movie and i don't know if and a, it's a TV and a show. show yeah yeah apparently about the seizure and the tenrix it it goes down a little bit but i 
I thought it was a kind of mass introduction to a type of Asian cinema that a lot of um, non-Asian audiences haven't seen. Kind of the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon vibes. Um, a literal hidden dragon? Well, yeah, a literal hidden dragon. And uh, I I have to say I had a much better time than, than Eternals. Oh, interesting. It was a very contained story with uh, relatable characters, which is my segue to Eternals. The positives. I think it was a very efficient introduction to 10 new characters and their powers. And it did manage to make me care about a couple of them for... Five minutes. A while. <laughs> uh, I, I liked uh, Kumail Nanjiani and his valet uh, in the movie. That was, that was pretty fun. Um, but I thought that the Druig and uh, Makari relationship was the most interesting of the three uh, kind of relationships in the movie. And I liked Gemma Chan because I like Gemma Chan and kind of everything she's done since um, uh, Crazy Rich Asians. I think she has um, like a real movie star performance in a movie that had a bunch of other movie stars. I thought she was really great. I, I think Gemma Chan is very much one of those actors to me that I don't know if they're a strong actor, but she just has so much charisma that I love watching her. And certainly Crazy Rich Asians and uh, what's the Soderbergh movie from last year? I was just going to yeah. say um, she was really good. Um, I really liked her in that. Yeah, um, she was really good. She, yeah, that's the book age. But overall, I I think her and Richard Madden's relationship was one of the less interesting parts of the movie, which is unfortunate because it is the turning point and like kind of crucial relationship in the movie from a plot perspective. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to come out with the worst scene of the movie. It's the Hiroshima scene. Oh. <laughs> I mean, wow. Like, the dropping of the nuclear bomb is one of the, like, failures of humanity in the history of humanity. And to kind of blame it on some supernatural being that in, that like showed the humans how to work a steam engine was baffling. I really, I, I think I, ex- I exclaimed in the theater, and there weren't a lot of people around, but um, my young uh, friend companion was like, "What is going on with you? Like, <laughs> like I can't believe this just happened." Um. Then I think the movie doesn't look very good. I think the natural vistas are beautiful, but there is so much CGI gloop on top of it that makes it seem like a video game on screensavers. So I didn't enjoy that. And then I think the villains looked especially bad. The deviant dogs, I think, are the worst looking villains I've seen in a in a while and the celestials look like like iron giant um knockoffs oh yeah they do like and <laughs> i love kevin like take a step back this is marvel you're talking about but i love this continue yes 
and then Richard Madden is kind of the super eternal, but when he uses his powers, he looks like Cyclops in the first um, X-Men movies, and it looks just as bad. He's not believable as kind of the the strong, um, the strongest of them all. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl, I'm, I have I'm, to say, like, I'm going to need your help talking with Kevin here because I'm very close with Kevin. He's invited me to his wedding, and this is this is making it very hard for me. So, like, if, <laughs> I'm going to depend well, on you here. <laughs> here back up, like, a shot against Chloe Zhao, which I think the it's first... Fine mailbag thing that I've ever sent you was when Chloe Zhao was announced to direct this movie. And I was mm-hmm. like, how is this going to turn out? Um, this might be unfair to her and you'll be able to, to stop me here, but it might show a deficiency of hers in directing actors because she didn't have to do that in her previous movies. And these are 10 or at least eight very well-known actors or pretty well-known actors and they seem like they live in different movies there is so many different movies going on in the same movies and feels like it got a bit away from her where she's maybe more concerned with the visual aspects Mm. of the movie that i also don't think played to her advantage it i didn't uh, weep at any sunsets um and yeah it kind of kind of left me cold the the visual aspect of it and it didn't help that most of the powers looked boring Mm -hmm. and played out as well um i think Gemma chan's character's powers i think that was interesting but a lot of other was like hulk smash cyclops uh, throwing things it it was it was a bit boring what i would have liked because i actually think it's an interesting concept it should have been a lost style tv show where they start out together they could have put this on disney plus i don't know if these actors would have been in it and you can focus each episode on a different character this is 10 characters killing off a bunch of them pretty quickly and then it's just a lot stuffed into two and a half hour of a movie that did feel like a drag. It was not like a breezy movie, even though a lot has happened. Hey, <laughs> and I very much disagree with that point. <laughs> I don't, so, okay, a few responses here. First of all, I think for me, part of this is I'm grading this on a Marvel curve, not grading it on a Chloe Zhao curve. So for me, it's like, I, I don't know, gut level, I liked watching this more than I liked watching a lot of the other Marvel movies. But you bring up a lot of interesting criticisms, especially the one about acting. I think that is something I didn't quite clock consciously while I was watching it, but that is definitely true. That in her previous films, she's working with novice actors, not she's working with non-actors, or she's working yeah, right. with... Frances McDormand, who she doesn't have to direct. So I I think that is an an interesting distinction that when she's working with a large ensemble cast of actors for the first time, and she's also working on a massive 
budget for the first time and working on a special effects feature for the first time, the direction of actors is going to fall through the cracks. I, I think she lucked into having quite a few very strong actors who just can do it enough. But your point about it not quite gelling is, I think, really salient and makes sense. The other thing is, what do we know about Marvel projects when Kevin Feige shows up on set? They're troubled productions. And I think that Eternals... He's we, not on set on all of them. We don't know everything. What? He's not on set on everything. When he come, there was a lot of stories about him having to mediate on set. And like the last time a lot of these stories came out of him having to mediate was at the very beginning in the Edward Norton Hulk. Mm. Where so Edward like the first Norton, movie. Yeah, where Edward Norton just like, I'm the director now. I'm going to make the decisions. What what he apparently does on every movie. I was going to say, that's an Edward Norton uh, problem for sure. <laughs> but I think that she had a lot of juice. Look, this movie was mostly done um, by the time she won the Oscar. But I think she had a lot of juice going into this production. And she wanted to put her vision into it. And I don't know if this is her vision or if this is the mediated vision that they brought Kevin Feige. And I think maybe Kevin Feige dropped the ball here a little bit as well because he's focused on another franchise right now, because I think he's in the business of making returning star Wars to critical and I think audience glory of the past. And I think his grand vision of Marvel ended with Endgame, and now it's kind of petering without a really clear direction of where to go. Even though I saw a calendar going around this uh, this week on Twitter, where every month there is a either a, a DC something. or a Marvel a Marvel thing coming out. So I don't know uh, how hands on he was with this, but yeah. I. I think we should move on to the next movie, but I would say, like Carl mentioned, I think a lot of good things. We like disagreement here. I think where where I landed a lot was like a lot of the shortcomings seem to have been, like Carl said, for my perspective, Marvel shortcomings. I don't think Chloe Zhao had a say in this is going to be a movie that you could split in two, that it can be a show, or that this is going to be what happens. These are the characters you have to introduce and how it has to end. And it did seem like just compelling characters whether it was just based on who they are. But I don't know. I saw it. I saw Shang-Chi the same week, and I left Shang-Chi being like, what the hell is this? I really like your point about diversity. I think that's a great point. I think it's still something that uh, just because it's new and it's different, like, there are just... It, it felt like there are ways to do it, and that last half an hour was just like... I'm just opening my eyes a lot. But it doesn't matter. I have a plot question about Eternals. So, uh, you you guys stuck around for the post credit scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It introduces a new character. Mm-hmm. And it's... Um, two new characters, no? Yes, two new characters. <laughs> but um, what's his name? Um, Star, Star Fox? I think so, yeah. Something like that. And he's supposed to be whose brother? Thanos. Thanos. 
Thanos' brother. Okay, and we learn in the movie that the emergence can only happen when uh, there's enough people on Earth to feed the eternal being or whatever they're called inside inside the planet. You right? remember much more he's of the plot of this movie than I do. Yes, you're right. Yeah, is Kevin going to talk about a plot <laughs> thing that doesn't make sense in a Marvel? Okay, continue, sorry. <laughs> when Thanos, if he's an eternal as well, does the snap that kills oh, no, no. half he, the population? He grows... Thanos is not an eternal. I think the story is that oh. Starfuck grows up in his... He's kind of like a Moses, you know, one of our forefathers situation. Yeah. <laughs> where he grows on the house of Thanos and his father. It's <laughs> okay. a perfect analogy, because actually. Because he would have slowed down the emergence of the being by killing half the population. Yeah. Which is, of course, what Twitter is saying about why they should have stopped Thanos on Earth. Because it was against the emergence. But my biggest block... Uh, blah. Plot point ever, and we should move to Spencer from this. Is the, uh, the thing I love the most is it is established that Wong, the helper of Doctor Strange, can cut limbs by doing his little ringy thing, mm-hmm. and he never cut any part of Thanos by doing his ringy thing. Like that is yeah. the best plot question that I have that I need answered. Now I'm gonna I need to shoot one over to you guys because I haven't watched this, so I am gonna be the Carl of this situation where I'm not gonna have my horse in the race like he did with Shang Chi. Spencer, Lady D, what's happening here? Your voice also seemed to be in a different corner. Yeah, I I saw this first, and I, the minute I the the, the credits rolled, I texted in the chat. I said, Carl, you're going to love this movie. Mm-hmm. Carl and I um, agree on a lot on movies, but we have some significant disagreements. But um, where we agree is we think that Jackie is one of the best movies made in recent years. And uh, Pablo Lorraine um, started this new project. Uh, He made Fantastic Woman, a really good um, Chilean film Mm -hmm. a couple years ago. But this is next English language project. Spencer about Christmas vacation at, uh, at Sandringham, the royal... Uh, the royal palace over Christmas, um, kind of in the throes of before the separation of Charles and Diana. And I watched it and I don't want to get into the plot first because I want to give <laughs> want to give Carl the floor <laughs> and explain why he apparently was very disappointed with the movie. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> I thought it was a mess, which I know is ironic coming from me, who's, like, the biggest defender of, of shit like Tomorrowland or Vice, which is, like, they are absolute messes, I, I understand. But I couldn't really grab, grab onto what the tone of the film was supposed to be. I know it was intended to be kind of horror. I... I... Like, it don't feel like it full bore committed to the tone in a way that I could really grab onto. And beyond that, I just really didn't like Princess Diana. I just... I, like, I don't think there was enough context in the film to set up what the royal family 
did to her besides some passive aggressive sl- comments or, or side eyes uh, even within the film the family seems to be very mildly holding on to like just trying to keep keep appearances make sure she doesn't do anything stupid make sure that she's eating and not suffering from her not su- suffering through her eating disorder like they're they're not compassionate towards her but they're not monstrous to her in a way that I think the film thinks she they're monstrous to her and that I think they probably were monstrous to her in real life. I just don't think the film has the legwork and the context to set that up. And that coupled with Kristen Stewart's performance of Princess Di, which I think is the right timbre for a performance in a film where it is leaning more into the horror of it and leaning more into how awful the royal family was to her. I think that's the right timbre. But watching that performance in what is a, a narrative vacuum to me in the film, I just couldn't latch on to it. I didn't like the character. I couldn't really empathize with her, and therefore the rest of the film fell flat. Even though there were sequences that I loved, it was beautiful. Johnny Greenwood's, Greenwood's scores, a banger, and I've been listening to it all week. Just Absolutely. didn't work for me, I think, just because I couldn't latch onto the character because of the legwork that wasn't there for me. Yeah. So can I ask you a question and Aiden, yeah. maybe you as well? Are you caught up with The Crown? I am not. I am aware maybe. that the I've seen like the first two seasons, but I know that Princess Di is in it and I've heard good things about the performance. So this past season was very much the Diana season. Um, and I really think the criticism of that this Spencer movie is supposed to be like a hagiography of Diana, mm-hmm. I think is totally misplaced. Like, I think this is people not understanding the movie. I think that this is a movie about a mentally ill person. Yeah. Which the, the subject is being broached in... Um, in the crown in a more multifaceted way because they have room to breathe. And here they basically show you three days over Christmas. Um, They show you some eccentricities of the royal family, but I agree with you. Nothing that happens in the movie that she takes so harshly is understandable to the viewer. And it might be imagined. Now, I live with somebody who has consumed almost everything there is to know about um, <laughs> Diana Spencer. Um, we also have to remind people, Kevin, you, you reside in uh, a part of the Commonwealth of the Queen. Absolutely. The <laughs> Queen is the head of state where I reside. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, we are we religiously watch and re-watch The Crown, which I think is, a, is, a, is an honest portrayal of that... Lady Diana was not this um, perfect person that was just bullied by the royal family, but she was really like a person that made a decision while being very young to get married to somebody that was quite a bit older than her and that suffered the consequence of a life where she couldn't, you know, didn't have a youth and then had children and then was kind of ostracized because of the outgoing nature and kind of 
like the thirst to perform and the thirst to be seen, which is kind of the opposite of what the royal family wants. So all this context is not given in this movie. But I think it still works as a ghost story. Sometimes I agree with you a bit heavy-handed with her literally seeing ghosts um, in the palace and also in kind of her kind of ancestral rundown um, mansion. I thought they found a couple of extraordinary uh, kid actors. I think they were very good. The when the she was with the boys, that is when the film worked for me, and those were tremendous performances, especially from from whoever was playing William. But at the same time, I think those scenes also are what prevented me from fully latching on to the Diana is unwell or Diana is also a villain of this piece, just because they are so tender and so sweet and kind of ground the film repeatedly as like she's just this mother who's lost and that's really what kind of i think could kept me from fully going to the side of i'm not supposed to necessarily empathize with her yeah i think this movie made me most empathize with the royal family and like with these kids um these people really need to get empathized with by the way (laughs) lately really um there is an episode in The Crown, um, season four, episode three, called Fairy Tale, where uh, Diana just moves in with um, Charles into Buckingham Palace. And the day she moves in, he's going on some royal tour. And so she's, she's all alone in the palace, trying to form connections with anyone who would have her. And the season kind of ends with the first kind of marital difficulties they have. And this is maybe two years after that, where she doesn't want to face anyone. She is missing out on all these, like she's staying away from all these events. She, um, she, yeah, she doesn't want to have to, she doesn't want to follow any of the rules. She only forms connections with kind of the staff. But I don't think the movie is uneventful or unbalanced. And people say boring. I, don't, I, I found her descent into madness. Mm-hmm and her reclusiveness kind of arresting. I think a really, really strong performance by Kristen Stewart that reminded me the most of all the Kristen Stewart performances of Personal Shopper, which is kind of the similar tone, a kind of horror-esque or maybe ghost story-esque. Um, it, that's a massive blind spot for me. I, I, I still need to see it. Yeah, I, I would I would sit down and watch that as soon as possible. I, I really, really like that movie. And I think Lorraine does it again and delivers a technically flawless movie. Like, from the desserts in the movie mm-hmm. to the rooms, it's just... It's beautiful. It, it reminded me so much of Jackie and the dress and the White House um, that looked really, like, almost um, at times, like, Wes Anderson-esque. But then it's supposed to really alienate you. Whereas I think Wes Anderson kind of inviting with this kind of whimsy. And he shows that this whimsy is all kind of facade um, to keep you kind of in. Um, I love that he centers his stories on, on women. And it's again, such a strong female. Charles doesn't figure 
mm. Prince Philip or, or even the Queen doesn't figure in the movie almost at all. And yeah, I think it's the third movie in five years that I, I have to put in like my favorites. It's it's going to be in the top 20 of 2021 for me, for sure. Um, I would, yeah, I would like to see it on a big screen. We watched it at home. But uh, I, I want that that uh, score to run through me. I've been listening to it while working the last couple of days. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, last week. And it is a banger. It is Once again, great. I mean, he can do no wrong. I, yeah, I know. He's he's amazing. And uh, I want to... One, one more uh, thought before we move into the Rotten Tomatoes theory that apparently is falling apart. But uh, the one... <laughs> other variable here that shocked me is i am a a stephen knight defender like he so stephen knight wrote the screenplay for this he also wrote the screenplay for my beloved locked down and wrote and directed serenity which is a film that i have really come around on partially because my wife loves how ridiculous it is and and like thinks it's actually emotionally resonant so i was all in on knight being key ingredient here that made it work for me and i I see why people don't like stephen where where do you stand on burnt you know i burnt and lock i have not seen yet these so i'm still the tip of the iceberg when it comes to stephen knight and i need to actually watch some of the stuff that people like i mean i guess i like who wants to be a millionaire that's that's if i'm gonna be a knight altruist but (laughs) um I think my favorite of his is Eastern Promises, mm-hmm. and yeah. maybe Spencer is my. Because hmm. I haven't seen Allied yet, but I think that seems to be a train wreck. And I I, I know of some people that it. defend Allied, but I think it's one of those where you want, like Serenity or some of his other projects, you watch it and you either hate it or you're like, ah, I get it, that was cool. Let's let's not alienate Aton any longer. <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm gonna I'm gonna get on my horse here for a second before Rotten Tomatoes because have any of you guys watched Encanto? No, I've not seen Encanto yet. I don't even know if it is available yet for us. in movies. Yeah, yeah, it should be. Yeah, no? yeah, Disney goes as wide release as anyone. But anyway, um, so Encanto's been interesting. I I've known about this movie for like four years. I think you both know that I have a family member that works at the animation studio mm-hmm. and he just shared like, hey, we're, we're thinking about this thing and he shared it with me because it was a Latin movie set in Colombia and remember being like very excited about it. I remember seeing the trailer and getting excited like Ariel and I have like a running list of people that we know that look like people in the movie, which is very funny, but also being like baffled by the marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. And this is not news to film Twitter, but like, no mention of Lima and Miranda ever. I don't know if because he was in Tick Tick Boom and he asked, I don't know. He had his press tour for that like right exactly at the same time. I have no idea why. I don't want to look too much into the numbers because this year it makes no sense. Like, they're of course down versus many of the things. It's still like, I think it was like the highest grossing original movie of the I don't remember, but there is still something that it's fine. But I went to watch it Sunday morning. Ariel and I chose AMC's expanding their uh, closed caption options, which is exciting. So we went to watch it like that. And 
I texted Carl coming out of the movie. I sobbed. Like, and I don't know why. Like, I think I know why. It's probably connected to what we were talking about, Carl, last week about, like, Pig and Tick, Tick, Boom. And, mm-hmm. and like, the movie touches on some of those, like, insecurities and love and expectations moments. It's one of those typical modern Disney Pixar movies that there is no villain, per se. The villain is the feelings, or the feelings are growing up. You know, it's like Inside Out or Coco, or like there is no villain. There is no one that is there to be a an adversary. The adversary is kind of a a thing like we have in our lives. There is there is nothing, but there is something. And there is just a point in the movie that I was sobbing, and I came out of the movies being like, I hadn't cried like this in my life in years, and I realized, but but why? I'm like, I don't know. And it was like at a weird point of the movie, so. I'm going to be curious for you to see it. Uh, I think it's a fun movie. It's a family movie. It's a very Latin movie in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like everyone lives in the same place and everyone knows each other. And like, I think of my family growing up of like the cousins and the aunts. And like, it's very much like that. Uh, Kevin has been in the house that my family had in Cuernavaca, which is like a summer house. And that's where we would all go and all stay in the same place. Like it felt the same. Um, I think the score is fun. The movies are fun. He has a couple of songs by Latin songwriters. So he's one. He has one by... Have you heard of Carlos Vives? No. So Carlos Vives is like the creator of... Uh, the type of, sm- of music is called Vallenato. Which sounds like cumbia. But it's like very rhythmic. And he mm-hmm. has a song. Sebastian Yatra. Who's like another like very famous singer-songwriter in Latin America. He has a, a song. And... I don't know, because I left and I realized, like, do you like the movie? I'm like, yeah. It wasn't anything special, but I think it was. So I'm surprising. If you watch it, like, let me know. And you and feel free to tell me, Eitan, this was all about the day you were having or the week that you had, because this did nothing for me. But I'm going to be curious to, to hear your thoughts um, after you catch up with it. I mean, Carl, I think you still need to watch Luca, right? Have you watched yeah, Luca? Yeah, I'm still You're probably still behind like on behind. Luca and Frozen 2, and I don't know what the last Disney thing I saw, really, like, as far as animation goes. I, I do think what you what you brought up about Lin-Manuel Miranda is fascinating. LMM. Because earlier this year, we definitely talked about how we thought, like, everyone's going to be more sick of Lin-Manuel than we ever have been between In the Heights the Sony thing that came out that nobody talked about. What is it? Vivo or something? Uh, yeah. I think yeah. that he's a monkey. Yeah. Something like that. And he did some music for it and Canto and then tick, tick, boom. And tick, tick, boom is the only thing that has really much of a conversation around it at this point. And even then the conversation seems to be, wow, he did a good job. I'm impressed. And not like a, oh my God, I'm sick of Lin-Manuel Lin- Lin- Miranda. So I'm going to stop saying his name. It's too much of a tongue twister. <laughs> LMM. LMM. But uh, I have to say, this was one of our agreements where I didn't come on the pod and air them out here. I rewatched um, In the Heights mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. I think it's a banger. And I think um, it's going to become kind of a a cult movie i think Fair. there are certain parts of the movie especially the the lottery uh ticket 
number mm-hmm. that is just so so fun and i i love the music i loved the musical before that i think he's spreading himself to you know get a get the the egot seems like encanto has good songs as well uh he might get double or triple nominated uh we'll see i i only see encanto commercials when watching uh football on the weekend and it looks like it's very well reviewed yeah and people seem to love it and as soon as it's available for uh for vod i think i'm gonna watch it at home i don't know if i'm gonna spend money on <laughs> and it by the way it, before moving on I'm glad you brought in the heights because we didn't talk that John Chu is erecting Wicked. Yeah, Kevin, very close to your heart. Yes, I remember Kevin I... driving me around in Switzerland and showing me like popular when I hadn't watched Wicked. This is like ten years ago now. Yeah, hey, I, I I think John Chu is innocent Wicked. in what I don't like about In the Heights. I think most of it is. I think there's a lot of variables in, in the heights that didn't work, and I don't blame his direction there. So excited to see it, as long as James Gordon doesn't get near it. <laughs> James Gordon. If you want to put that on in the background just while cleaning the house, great movie. Uh, <laughs> okay, Kevin. The okay. Floor is yours. Okay. So I've been there's kind of two things I've been thinking about Rotten Tomatoes over this year. I think that critics are reviewing movies with kind of rose-colored glasses a little bit. I think they're giving movies after COVID a bit of benefit of the doubt. But I also see the kind of gap between critics' movies and kind of audience movies widen. And I thought, I want to know how many movies this year mm-hmm. were both a critical hit, so got over 80% on Rotten Tomato, which makes them certified fresh. To be honest, 75% is actually already certified fresh, but I, I wanted to have a bit of a higher benchmark. And then for the audiences, I wanted to see 85% plus. I was like, how many movies this year have cleared that benchmark? And how many of these movies are non-franchise movies? And I sent you a question in the chat about a month ago. I said, how many or which movies do you think cleared that benchmark? And back then, there were eight. And now there are 11. 25. Oh, okay. (laughs) No. So the... The thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is which movies you think made it. Because there's one movie here. I, I think I'm very clued in to uh, what's coming out. And I think I, I'm seeing most... There's a movie here that I have never heard of. But I took out documentaries and I took out animated movies. Because they're always audience hits. And if they're well-reviewed as well. I wasn't interested in that. I wanted to see widely released uh, movies and that cleared these benchmarks. So I'm telling you which ones I have not factored in yet, but are on a good way to clear the benchmark. Licorice Pizza, not widely released yet, but looks like that's going to happen. But I wanted to ask you, how. so 
11 movies. Which movies you guys think have cleared that benchmark? Eight movies. Eight. Well, so like I'll it. tell you which ones came out in the last month that cleared the benchmark. And then we can go to the one that was my original thesis. Let's see so if we King can choose. Richard. Oh, I was going to say King so. Richard, but fine. Okay, okay, tell me the other ones. In the last <laughs> month? King the Richard? Uh, Dune? Or is Dune less than a month? That's before? It's, yeah. Uh, a movie you talked uh, about? French, French Dispatch? It's also older, but it did oh not God. clear the benchmark. A movie talked we talked about, about you say? Yeah. What well, was the Eternals? And it was, it was as sure as hell wasn't fucking Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi's gonna be there. It was Tick, Tick, Boom, and it was Belfast. Ah, okay. Belfast was yep. a bit before. Bel- Belfast so Belfast sense, only yeah. went wide like three weeks ago. So there's eight before that. Okay. So the Belfast is a, is a good clue in because it's... Tick, Tick, Boom is a... I guess it could be a film that's kind of niche like Tick, Tick, Boom where the audience that is watching it is really responding to it. But Belfast, like an Oscar bait play, would work there. I haven't seen the film. I'm, I'm not judging it on Oscar bait, but it seems like it is the Oscar bait du jour this year. Well, I think from what I've heard, it's less like a lot of people make the connection to Roma because mm-hmm. it's a like a personal yeah. story of the filmmaker and it's in black and white. But people is, is a much more gentle and I think happy film. Which is, I think, why it is more palatable to wider audiences and not depressing. Uh, Roma is one of my favorite movies of the century, so mm-hmm. I, I'm rewatching it regularly. Uh, okay, okay, eight so, movies. Four yeah. of them are franchise movies, and four of them are not. Okay. So let's play a little. And game. they're all like theatrical, or like Netflix also counts. Um. It would count. One of them, I, the movie I've never heard about, I don't know if it had a theatrical release. But all the other ones had theatrical releases. So is Dune one of them? Dune is one okay. of them. Okay. And that counts as franchise, even though it's the first one? Yes. Cool. Okay. okay. Bond? Correct. Okay. Do you consider Coda having theatrical release? Coda, you guys are very good. I'm very impressed. What else we got? Um, you say that and then I completely drew <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Shut up, Kevin. Don't tell us. Sorry. Um, let's see. Any of the HBO Max, like the uh, Let Them All Talk? That is probably not wide. That, that was last year. Nope. Or are and we the talking Soderberg okay. and the Soderberg and the Soderberg one also didn't get a the no southern move did not clear the bench okay okay um, franchise movies Venom no oh if you tell if you tell Carl is Fast Nine he's gonna kill you but probably not it is not Fast Nine I, but it is Shang Chi Shang Chi is one of them I do not yeah. have any animosity towards Fast and the Furious I just. Don't think about it. Yes, you do. <laughs> we'll watch it. Okay, I want to round this out because we want to talk about it. Okay. So, Quiet Place Part uh, Two. Yes. Okay. I can't. I can't even remember what I've guy. seen this year. From I'm never going to think about those things. In the Heights. 
In the Heights cleared mm-hmm. it? Yep. Judas and the Black Messiah. Okay. We already said Coda. And a movie called Dream Horse. Didn't Judas and the Black Messiah won't win Oscars? How is that this year? It came out in January. Ah, uh, because it's the weird Oscars that are like... Yes. Okay, you... and which one? A movie called Dream Horse. The only reason I know about Dream Horse is because it was playing at Sundance, last Sundance in 2020. So there was a film I almost got a ticket to, the Tony Collette horse movie, but otherwise would not have known whatsoever that this thing existed. This is a 6.6 million like dollar box office, Damien Lewis, Tony Collette horse movie that has over 10,000 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And How? I have no idea. But then I was thinking, are we going to get to 20 movies in total or 10 independent movies this year that are going to clear this benchmark? And I want to go through the movies that are still coming out or are not widely released yet and their chances to maybe clear this benchmark. So Power of the Dog is out already Mm -hmm. and is not going to clear the benchmark because audiences do not like this movie. Okay. Candidate for Best Foreign Film this year, The Worst Person in the World, I think it has a 100% critical mm-hmm. rating, is trending down with audiences. <sighs> Sean Baker's new movie, we don't have any data yet, Red Rocket, does not look good. Florida Project didn't clear the benchmark, and Tangerine didn't clear the benchmark either. Both movies. Love Florida I think Project. we love. Yeah. yeah. Licorice Pizza is looking good, but it's not widely released. There's only 50 audience reviews. The Lost Daughter could make it. It has a very good cast. Being the Ricardos, the new um, uh, Aaron Sorkin movie, (laughs) is not going to clear it, I think, because of critics. Critics, yeah. West Side Story, I I think, is a lock. Uh, Yeah, there's a way... It is it. So Nightmare Alley, I don't know. Depends if, if people like period. Coming out of Teeth, I, I only saw like seven people on Twitter. Everyone seemed relatively positive, except second favorite Carl Boy after David Sims, uh, David Elric. He was lukewarm. Did I say his name right? Not David. David Ehrlich, yeah. 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 Okay. okay, he's not a favorite boy of mine. I, I've fallen out of okay, favor with Ehrlich. Sorry. Okay, I was perfect, say, because he disliked Nightmare Alley. I'll take it. There's no way that uh, Don't Look Up clears the critical hurdle either. Yeah, I just looked... Uh, I just talked to Eitan... He just looked it up. On, and David, uh-huh. David Ehrlich just wrote like a... Uh, like a not nice review about the movie for IndieWire. Um, Cyrano de Bergerac. I don't see a way this clears the benchmark. That looks Journal for really Jordan. compelling though, but there's no way it clears the audience benchmark. <laughs> Kevin, the biggest bullish uh, Netflix person I know, you're telling me Red Notice is not going to be have a cultural impact in the world? He didn't have a, I don't know. Power of the Dog fine. might win Best Picture, so... And, who, and again... Yeah, I don't know. So, Asghar Farhadi's new movie, A Hero, mm-hmm. might, because both, his, both of his previous ones... Well, one had like, was like 84% audience, but... I counted that as as passing. House of Gucci not gonna mm. 
not going to clear. And Mike Mills's new movie, Come On, Come On, which I've heard a lot oh, of yeah. good things about. Is that um, really good? Uh, I don't think Phoenix, so. Right? Yes, yeah. because beginners and 20th Century Women, both really good movies, but especially yeah. 20th Century Women, both didn't uh, because With of audience? audiences. Yeah. Who the hell doesn't like either of those movies? Those, I don't those know. People don't like uh, female-led movies. Okay. Question. Um, well, no. Finish. Finish this list, Kevin. Before you go to no. The this list. is this is the list. Okay. Question for you guys. When we talk about Rotten Tomatoes, we always talk about all of the different reasons why it's a flawed way, but it's still an interesting thing to look at because you can compare it apples to apples versus itself. We usually think about the critics, so I'm glad, Kevin, that you looked at this disparity. Because what I'm trying to think is, if you're a critic, you're either a critic or you're not, right? Rotten Tomatoes is going to have a weird way, I'm sure, that they are going to consider critics their bar by being very low, but they always consider them the same, right? Yes. If you write a review, you're going to be in Rotten Tomatoes. Which type of audience writes their vote in Rotten Tomatoes? Are these it's always hard. the same? Are these going to be like Marvel fans are going to only do it for Marvels? Or do we think these are people that are more... When I talk with Carl, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, but I think I've gotten better. I've always said, like, I'm a pretty average reviewer. I'm not going to love any movie, maybe, but I'm not going to hate any movie. If I'm entertained, I'm good. So if I think of myself in Rotten Tomatoes, I'm probably always going to be a supporter because I'm going to fall in, like, between 60% and 70%, which is an 100th in the way that they think about it. So I'm just trying to understand, like, is this something, it feels in my mind that the audience score is not as apples to apples versus other audience scores in Rotten Tomatoes, like critic scores are. Is that fair? How do you think about this? I don't know if that's wrong. Because also the way they aggregate the data is like, sometimes a movie that's three out of five, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in, a, in a rating in a newspaper that they aggregate, that's a it's a binary choice. It's a yeah. plus or a minus, right? And right. that's a plus. Even though when I read a newspaper review that's three out of five, it's very like average movie. Um, I think what you're saying is not incorrect, but when you look at the critic scores, usually based on like a hundred top critics and kind of two hundred fifty total critics. Mm-hmm. When you look at Wide releases on Rotten Tomatoes, 10,000 plus um, audience reviews or more. And I think it averages out. Um, And I think, yeah, that, you know. I hear that. Didn't you say DreamWorld has 10,000 audience reviews? Has 10,000 people watched DreamWorld? Apparently, yes. Probably. But but that's the point, right? Probably the people that watch DreamWorld are the ones that are going to write those reviews. So when you think of another type of movie, if it's the same 10,000 people, sure, they're going to get to 10,000 people. But the type of people that are going are just this type of self... I don't know. Yeah, but you could say, like, okay, this movie made $6.6 million at the box office. So let's be let's make it easier and say, what? how many people have seen that in cinemas then? Like, 600,000? Like... 300, 300, yeah, between 300,000 and 600,000. I'm pulling up the... Like, uh, if you go to the movie... Th- but that would mean that 3% right of people that watched drop the review. That seems like an insane number. 
3% seems super high. It's, it's on Hulu. I think it's available on VOD. Yeah. It's on Hulu for free. So like 10,000 people might have stumbled onto it on Hulu, but I don't imagine the Hulu algorithm would be actively pushing that. And there's a difference to me between something being dumped on Hulu than something being aggro promoted on Netflix for like a month, you know? It's that is a yeah. suspicious thing. Maybe they just spent all their marketing budget on astroturfing. <laughs> but no, but sorry, this is an honest like curiosity question. When I think of that audience, do I just think like we're just capturing the people that self select into I care enough about movies that I'm gonna yeah. go report my thing, and yeah. because I do that, I'm someone like Carl and Kevin that potentially has like a good developed point of view on things. So I'm likely to be between a five and a zero in a scale. Versus an Eitan that is always going to fall between a 3 and a 4. To your point, Kevin, that at the end of the day, that doesn't really matter. Because they... Well, it does matter, right? Because if it's binary also for audiences, if you're a 3 or a 4, you're always going to 100. It's always yeah. going to skew higher. So, and in my mind, what that tells me is that any movie that has a negative audience, it's actually very negative. Because it's easier to capture the people that might say, yeah, this was fine. But this is me. I'm just thinking about this for, for the same time. That's just like something that would come to mind around how, what is the people that capture. Not well, that it, it doesn't say anything no. about your analysis, by the way. I'm not saying it like that. I'm just curious. What is kind of interested me is kind of looking at what kind of movies have yeah, yeah, for sure. these big gaps. And it's the same kind of movies. For example, there is a study that, go, that looks at movies from 2007 to 2017. It's like... All Coen Brothers films are like more than 16% different between critics. A lot of Fincher movies, a lot of kind of these auteur of Sean Baker movies, um, Ryan Johnson movies, kind of these auteur huh. filmmakers um, that have a uh, Yorgos Lanthimos movies, yes. uh, Alfonso Cuaron movies, kind of these. Uh, Gen X filmmakers that I think we, the three of us, quite like, mm -hmm. are very divisive with audiences. And then obviously The Last Jedi was the first big kind of review bombing movies where kind of there was an organized movement mm -hmm. to attack a movie. I think that the other big one is Captain Marvel. But where there is a certain group of um, audience members that organize to sag um, a certain movie. I think um, Ghostbusters, the female Ghostbusters one, is is uh, also one of these, and Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Mm -hmm. Might be the other way around, actually. But yeah, kind of the list between 2007 and 2017, some of my favorite movies are just not not liked by uh, by white audiences and and more more recently like snowpiercer the master foxcatcher mm -hmm. um and it also like if you flip it and you look which movies do audiences like and critics hate it's things like the like live uh, live action lion king mm -hmm. aladdin transformers movies suicide squad Batman versus Superman, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men, Tell No Tales, mm -hmm. Justice League, Terminator Genesis. These are all movies that are they have like the upright 
popcorn basket, but a rotten rating. I, I think with um, some of those, you see the opposite of the review bombing as well. Obviously, like Terminator Genesis, that is, see, I don't think there are James Cameron stands or James Cameron verse stands screaming about how he's a genius and like we need to protect his reputation at all costs. But there are certainly those people doing that with Zack Snyder and his films or the, the things connected to his films. So I, I think the really interesting data points here, like if I was to clean the data around the analysis here, it would be to remove a lot of the franchise films and just really look at the ones that like what you are saying, like your Foxcatchers or your Snowpiercers or your Licorice Pizzas or Dream Horses. These, these films that there's not a necessarily built-in audience or a built-in like woke or anti-woke campaign against them there's there's certainly some politicking and review bombing and inflation going on but i think this is an interesting analysis for a lot of these films that yeah like there is very little reason why like gone girl or the the girl with the dragon tattoo culturally you should have the expectation of what those are before you go see them and I don't think they are unfair adaptations of those works that would irritate audiences. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it is important to look at the franchise movies as well, because I think it's much easier to clear the benchmark if a franchise movie is well-reviewed, because I think mm-hmm. a lot of audiences go... Like, yes, there are these fringe groups that do the review bombing and yeah. whatever, but I think a lot of the high marks for franchise movies is families for example or people who just go to the cinema to watch an event movie and having an okay time with explosions and sounds and you know then batman versus superman doesn't feel so bad or a movie like i mean this is criminal a movie like passengers um yeah i guess there's a spaceship great like that doesn't look as good on my 42 inch uh, tv at home and I already, you know, bought the popcorn and and the M&Ms. And then either you have the reaction of like, ah, it was a nice time. We're out of the house. That was actually okay. And that counts as a, you know, as a plus. Or you say like, I spent all that money and then this was a crap movie. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know how to... Um, how to understand it. And there is no, not a lot of like developed science behind it. The, the most contemporary articles I could find was around Dave Chappelle's new special that's like yeah. at a 98% audience score and like 45% critic score um, compared to Nanette that came out a couple of years by uh, Hannah Gatsby, mm-hmm. which has like a... 100% I think uh critic score and a 50% audience score and like oh man didn't like it all the More critics are you know woke liberal you know mm-hmm. coast coastal dwellers which you know I I thought she said Annette no. not Annette but I imagine the Annette score Nanette. would also be similar to that <laughs> if but not much like, lower it come up a couple of years ago it came out like four no. months ago no uh have you not seen this Hannah Gatsby special? No, I, I, I'm aware. That came out a couple. I'm aware of it. I just heard you wrong. I would really recommend it. I think it's kind of a tremendous piece of like 
stage. Right. Actually, Annette's Annette with an A. There's only 50 ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, but the audience score is higher than the critic score at 76 versus score. 71. Which is baffling, I think. But <laughs> that is uh, fewer than 50 ratings usually means nobody has seen it yet. I, I think most of the Even people that it is out on Prime. The Venn diagram of people that actively go out of their way to rate things on Rotten Tomatoes that have also seen it is not much of an overlap. Because I think there's more ratings of that movie on uh, on Letterboxd. Oh, for sure. Which they don't seem to aggregate for Rotten Tomatoes. Um, so that was kind of the, the conversation I wanted to have. Uh, title of app, uh, Something's Rotten in the State of Tomatoes. <laughs> Sure. Cool. You named the episode and saved, saved us five minutes. <laughs> I was trying to do a quick research and I couldn't find anything uh, specific. What do you think is the largest one? Do you think it's the last Jedi? The, the largest gap ever? I did look that up. Um, it is not. Um, something expected or something the, weird? If you say like the Green biggest Book. One, oh, the biggest one is... Again, a tour filmmakers uh, of the last of in this in this century. I didn't I didn't look yeah, further. Yeah, that's, that's because, uh, Hail Caesar, over forty oh. percent uh, difference. Yeah, and Haywire, the Steven Soderbergh movie that I just watched. The the uh, action action uh, with uh, the, the Gina Carano one. I was gonna say yeah. with the racist. Uh, yeah, and the movie sure. called Mr. Turner that I haven't seen. Oh yeah, the uh, Mike Lee. Painter, actually thing. a bunch of the, a bunch of the cheap Soderbergh movies. The Informant, oh, yeah. Love and Friends. Um, what else is big? High Flying Sausage Birth Party. To make Kyle. I I just can't imagine watching a Soderbergh movie and getting angry. Well, I can imagine watching like Ocean's Twelve and getting angry and getting angry. That's fair, but the modern ones. Oh, oh I love Ocean's Twelve for the record. It's my favorite Ocean's. Yeah, I know you do, but. I, I can I can empathize with that, but I can't imagine watching Haywire and being mad at Haywire. <laughs> By the way, today uh, we record this on mm-hmm. December seventh, twenty uh, year anniversary today. Yep. Of Ocean's Eleven. Ah. Uh, Ocean's Twelve. Ocean's Twelve is one of those movies that I remember. Maybe it was because it was a kid. Maybe it's because I thought I wanted it to be like Ocean's Eleven. Maybe because I didn't appreciate a good acted scene. I didn't like the first time I saw Oscars 12. And I agree now with you, Carl. I think it's the best one now. Especially, um, I think, because of Matt Damon. That is also my take. I think Matt Damon is fantastic in Ocean's 12. 12 is great. Don't it's really good. It is not better than 11, but I know that Carl has... I think the peaks are higher. I think the peaks are higher. <laughs> I think Eleven is one of the best movies ever made. But uh, these are all fair takes to me. That the I, most, the most, the most rewatchable movie ever made. But yeah, I just, sure, I sure. actually, I can agree with this that. summer. I rewatched um, Twelve, and it is so much better than Thirteen. I, still I don't understand 13. the Thirteen stands. That's fine. Um, but it's no, still it a is, fun movie. It is great. Thirteen. Yeah, like, it, like having these guys play, it's fun. I, I have to say, and I like this to what you said of 12 and the most rewatchable versus the best. And 
I think we can all agree the thing we also with Rotten Tomatoes is would you say that all of your favorite movies are good movies? Or would you say Carl that you not. love or would you say exactly or would you say that you love only good movies? Or that you um, love all good movies? Right? I think that's the thing about this of it being art. And sure there is something about the masses and the average and whatever and the like the whole point about these things is that we'll each have a different connection with each of these things, not only because of what we like, but of what we're going through. And it yeah. can cry in Encanto for no particular reason at all. That if I maybe had to watch it a month later, it would have meant anything. But you know, like I think that's the beauty of it, that we can talk about this and have a podcast about this and have very cool numbers that we can look at. And at the same time, we're like, yeah, I'm going to love a lot of good movies. A lot of, sorry, I'm going to love a lot of not good movies. And I'm not going to love all good movies. And that's fine. I mean, there's, there's something really special okay. whenever you watch a movie that everyone hates, that you love, about the fact that, wow, somebody spent $20 million on this just for me and nobody else. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's so nice of them. <laughs> I have to say I love that Carl is out there with his takes I think I'm more easily swayed by um, reviews that I re- like sometimes I love a movie until I read a review mm-hmm. and then I rewatch it and then I, I have this like tainted um, experience I, I actually wrote to Carl about yeah about a month ago when I had this time to watch a lot of movies I rewatched um, um, Richard Jewell, mm-hmm. which I hated the first time that I watched. I watched it in uh, theaters, and it was I had read all these movies about how they misrepresent the journalist in the movie, mm-hmm. and it was like Clint Eastwood's like you know mission to bag on the media and. Uh, uh, you know, they, they, either the government or, or the media or some, you know, progressive leaning or left leaning thing sometimes has to be the machination of evil in a, in a, in a Clint Eastwood movie or lately in a Clint Eastwood movie. Um, and I didn't like it. And then it came up on Netflix about a month ago and Miriam was starting to watch it and she said she'd never seen it before and I just sat there and just didn't get up uh, didn't second screen I just watched the whole thing and I really liked it on the merits of the movie I think it's well acted it's well shot it's 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 a subject that I was always interested in mm-hmm. and yeah maybe I have to give it other other movies I bag on, maybe uh, another choice. So, I guess uh, if Goldfinch rewatches <laughs> on the cards. I was gonna say, and I think Carl, you asked me something like this last week or a couple of weeks ago. Oh no, I, I had was dinner. I was having dinner with some friends, and they were like, "What is the one movie that you think is underappreciated? That if somebody asks you for a um, for a recommendation, you will give?" I don't want to ask you that question for of you, but like. Carl, forget about the usual suffix that you talk about. But if I could ask both of you, yeah, what is the movie that you think is underappreciated that you think people need to give a second chance to? Uh, 
Yeah, let's let's do it like that. Like I could I could frame yeah. that question in a lot of different ways that could lead us in different directions of like the most underappreciated or the one that you like the most versus blah 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 or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I'll give you one of this year and then I'll give you just one. I think still my favorite movie this year is Shiva Baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a very personal film for me. I think it's a very Jewish movie. Ooh, and I had a. I've rewatched it now four times. Uh, I rewatched it again on the plane yesterday. Um, it's a Canadian filmmaker, so it's always on Air Canada flights. <laughs> um, there's just nothing that can make me <laughs> not rewatch this movie when it's on. Um, available on, I, guess, I think, HBO Max. Um, check that for me, Americans. <laughs> oh, and then, I don't know if these are underappreciated or just not seen because they're, you know, foreign language, but this is a very well-reviewed movie and a lot of people say one of the best movies, you know, of the 2000s, um, just barely made it in the 2000s, but um, Wong Kar Wai's um, In the Mood for Love. Uh, I, I, uh, I was on a bit of a Wong Kar Wai. Um, how do you say? Wave mm-hmm. this summer where I rewatched. I, I just was a blind spot for me. I just, I'd never watched it, and his movies are very different one from another. This was the one I loved the most, and then if I had to give another recommendation, I think a serious man is. My favorite Coen mm. Brothers movie, again, a very Jewish movie. And Ruben Östlund's The Square, which I know uh, Carl likes a lot too. Most people, if they've seen a Robin, uh, Ruben Östlund movie, have seen Force Majeure that has been remade for American audiences mm-hmm. um, in a, um, <laughs> let's say, less good <laughs> uh, way. Not as good. Um, with uh, Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But The Square is kind of this satire of modern art and uh, a really enjoyable film for me. If you look for The Square, don't watch... I mean, you can watch it too. It's also pretty good. Don't watch the Tahrir Square documentary. Watch the Ruben (laughs) Östlund movie. They came out... I think almost in the same year. One is 2016, one is 2017. But uh, yeah, those would be mine. And then my favorite movie ever that I don't think is underappreciated, but is now, you know, uh, over 30 years old um, is... God damn it. We got a... <laughs> Let's cut here that I <laughs> forgot the movie that I wanted to talk about. Um so I don't know if this movie is underappreciated, but I don't know how many people have seen it or um, how much it is still in the conversation, but Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing is my favorite mm. movie of all time. And I watch it every summer on the hottest day of what I think mm-hmm. by that time is the hottest day of the summer. And yeah, that's, that's my recommendation. That's, a lot. that's great. 
I, I have three that came to mind right away for me. So for this year, the film would be The Eyes of Tammy Faye, a film that Kevin and I were speaking about before we recorded. It is not my favorite film of the year, but it's in my top ten right now. And I think it got kind of swept out of the way by bigger films. And I, I think also people didn't like that Tammy Faye was a sympathetic character or portrayal, but I, I think it makes it a pretty complex film. And she is a very complex character as realized by Jessica Chastain. So definitely worth a watch. Um, Michael Showalter directed it of Big Sick and Wet Hot American Summer fame. So really recommend that one from this year. I, I think the... A movie we agree on. A movie we agree on, yes. And then... I think, actually, I have three three more real quick. Um, Godzilla, which I talk about all the time, the uh, Gareth Edwards one, just really lean, mean, great little action movie that looks great. Um, and then the other two I was going to say are Catching Fire has been one that I've been thinking about a lot over the last year since I rewatched it. It is, it's a franchise film, clearly. It is a sequel. It is very much like it's something that is easy to underthink and underappreciate but it is just a really tight well-made movie excellent cast across the board really kind of reckons with the horrors of the premise of the hunger games and the world they're in and i think it's just it uses imax well like all of the arena stuff is shot in imax and this gorgeous ass big asset ratio that kind of is otherworldly feeling i just it's something that whenever i was watching it i just thought it was much smarter and better made than i had ever really appreciated and then the last one is uh damien chazelle's first man which i think a lot of people either skipped after la la land didn't see because they didn't like la la land or didn't like because they thought it was going to be a big space movie and it wasn't. But it's just a really sad, beautiful portrait of Neil Armstrong. So those are mine that come to mind. And just because we talked about um, Rotten Tomatoes and gaps between critics and audience, there's a feature on Letterboxd where you can see which, like, uh, which movie you've rated much better than uh, the average Actually, I actually don't think this is my biggest gap, but I think this has the lowest Rotten Tomatoes score of the movies I've rated four and higher. I don't know how this movie has held up. I haven't seen it in a while. I'm sure there is some politically incorrect stuff, but I used to love the butterfly effect with Ashton Kutcher and, uh, and Amy Smart. Uh, that movie really fucked with my head uh, when I was yeah, a teenager. And th- there's an alternate ending that's crazy, too, that was on the DVD. So I think The Butterfly Effect is, is my lowest rated um, Rotten Tomatoes score that I, that I really like. But then also haven't seen in a while. And it's probably... Not a good movie. Eitan, <laughs> do you have any racks here? 
I don't think that I have that many, you know, guys that I've, I'm a pretty mainstream person. I end up going back to things that are more, like, they're not going to be um, unfamiliar to you. But I end up going to, you know, like, Mexican cinema. Like, mm. Y tu mamá también, or Amores Perros. Like, both of those are, like, you know, early Iñárritu and early Cuarón. So it's very easy. Um, but those two are kind of, again, when I need to recommend something that people are not likely to have watched, I say those things. Um can I just say something about Itumama Tambien? Yes, please. Um, any of you watch Ted Lasso? Yes. No. So the guy who plays Roy Kent, he has a movie podcast where he discusses with celebrities sometimes, but kind of Brit- British, like the British comedy class, uh, mostly films that they would like take to their grave. Mm-hmm. Like the whole premise is that they die and then they go through a questionnaire about movies. And one of the questions is sexiest movie. And every second person says uh, Itumama Tambien as the sexiest movie, which I don't disagree with. It's a very sexy movie. I need to rewatch it, but I, I see it. That makes sense. Um, what else do I usually say? Um, Carl, you haven't seen Amores Perros, right? I haven't seen what? Amores Perros, the Inuritu. No, film. I have not. Uh, the only, I've only Carl, seen the most recent Inuritus. You should watch Amores Perros. It's pretty crazy. Um, the other ones that I usually say are like... Um, I don't know. Just movies that come to my mind like uh, that people maybe don't love that I love. I love Baby Driver. It's a good soundtrack. I, I, I find driving. it very fun. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Again, I, I think I'm just maybe a little normal. Oh, well, the one that I love that is not mainstream, but you guys know it's, and I love, and I rewatched it the other day, it's uh, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Also, great soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, that I think is underappreciated. That movie Absolutely is. is. Great. That was a great one. I know Carl has a as a hard out pretty soon. I wanted to ask you a Disney question that has been nagging me. Okay. If you'll indulge me for a couple of minutes. Yes. And I've actually thought about it in um, in connection with watching Eternals. So he's been on the job now almost two years. Uh, sorry. Sorry, let's start again. I've been thinking about JPEG which you guys talk about a lot. I'm showing my Disney War encyclopedia that I got today. Yes. And (laughs) as far as I understand it, he's been hired as the money guy, right? He's not a creative type. He's a guy that understands business over creativity. I would like to give him a... uh, For you to give him a letter grade for his tenure uh, creatively. I'm going to run through the things that have come out mm-hmm. since he's been in charge. And you tell me creatively how you would grade that. <laughs> so it is Onward, Soul, Raya, Luca, Jungle Cruise, Artemis Fowl, The Woman in the Window, but not really. Free Guy, Last Duel, Ron's Gone Wrong, Cruella, Black Widow, 
Shang-Chi Eternals, The Mandalorian Season 2, WandaVision, Loki, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I guess now um, Hawkeye and Encanto. Well, I think it's I don't know. I think it's unfair to grade him on the dregs of of Iker's tenure. But that said, I can see why Iker wanted to get out because that is definitely like a C minus content slate right there. But also to be to your point around these are all things that were done before he came in. Iger technically said, "You run the business. I'm only gonna do creative." Ooh. So just to put it on a broader point, like this is Iger coming out. But this is a good point. That okay. these, this is a not a great yeah. content slate at all. Oof. And also, let's be quite honest. Like, they've all made money, but they've not made great money. Like, this is pandemic related yeah. too, but none of these have done amazing business. Like, uh, Free Guy might have mo- made the most, the most business out of these. As you know, Black Widow and Shang-Chi. No, Shang-Chi and Black Widow. No, okay. That, that, that's unfair. They've actually made good business. Yeah, if you look at the, the top 10 this year, there are actually a lot, a lot of Disney movies. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe there hasn't been much creatively anyways. Like if I look at my 2021 list, mm-hmm. I think I still have, as I said, um, Shiva Baby number one and then maybe Inside which I count as a movie as number two. But uh, yeah, I hope these kind of end of year um, big ones. I actually have Dune number two, which I really liked. You guys discussed already, right? Yeah, we like Dune. Yeah, and have I... you guys seen The Green Knight? Yes. I love oh, yeah. The Green Knight. Yeah. So I, I do have an out in a minute, but before I, I go, I did want to ask you what your best picture prediction is i have three in mind that i think you might say but would love to be surprised so there's three that i have in mind and i haven't seen any of them okay so this is purely on what i've I've been hearing of people who have seen certain ones and what I think audiences are going for. You've already, I agree with you, West Side Story has a really good chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Belfast mm-hmm. has a good chance. And I think Power of the Dog. Yep. Those I, are the three. I think, yeah. I think King Richard will be in the kind of Ford versus Ferrari slot of like, a movie that audiences like, but actually, like yeah, it's a sports, no, sports-ish movie, um, and then Dune might get nominated. I don't know. I, I think Dune Licorice gets Pizza the get. Dune gets the early Lord of the Rings nom slash the genre nom slash the blockbuster Panther. nom, but it's not the it's not going to win this year. Does Coda get a nomination? I imagine that's I the indie know. nom. I I don't know. Like, it's not going to be a card counter. It's not going to be Stillwater. It's not going to be Pig. It should be. Maybe Pig should be considered. PTA will Nobody's probably get director about, and screenplay. Nobody's about that movie not, except for the three of us. I, I don't think Licorice, Licorice Pizza takes it home, and neither does Nightmare Alley. I doubt either gets nominated for Best Picture, but we'll see. I think uh, Nightmare Alley will be nominated. 
because the academy just loves Guillermo del Toro, and so do I. I was say, I are, you to, to the choir. are you about to besmirch yeah. del Toro in front of Aton? He's going to boot you from the Zoom. No, I know where Kevin stands. <laughs> and I know Kevin wants to be invited to the podcast again. I think I've never disliked a Guillermo del Toro movie, but uh, yeah, he has a good track record with me. Um, yeah, that's... If I had to put money down, I would go Belfast. Yeah, I I think Belfast, sight unseen and audience, audience reaction mostly unseen. Belfast seems yeah. like the safest bet all the way around. If audiences connect with West Side Story... I'm going to put all my money on West Side Story. But we will see. I can't wait now. I was so worried, but the response has been so good. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see that in theaters. Absolutely. For sure. Well, Kevin, you survived Thanks another episode me. with us. Thank you for being on. <laughs> Always you a pleasure. Podcast right, Carl? Yeah, I am um, <laughs> definitely aping somebody else's ending. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, great to have you. Thanks for being here. Hi, I, I, I'm glad we could have it out over these two movies, and uh, I'll come on with the next big disagreement. Or, uh, <laughs> we'll separate it out and, and do uh, historical disagreements between <laughs> Carl and Kevin. That's a spin-off. Hey, we, we keep threatening to do our own special episode and or, yeah. or podcast, so let's actually do some sort of spinoff and we'll see you in oscar season at least very soon not that soon it's a late oscars as well but uh, we'll keep in touch yeah we, we won't keep bumping you for three weeks next time <laughs> okay great guys thank you for having me thanks everyone bye, bye.